0: You're listening to the human upgrade with Dave Asprey. Formerly,
1: Bulletproof,
0: Bulletproof radio. radio. A state of high performance. You're listening to the human upgrade with Dave Asprey. I want to share with you one of the year's most popular episodes that I really want you to hear. It's with Dr. Amy Shaw talking about how to fix your fatigue, or more accurately, why am I so effing tired? this is around something that's at the core of biohacking it's that there's a combination of your hormones your gut and your immune system and in her words they form an energy trifecta and if your immune system is chill because your gut is working right and you have the right energy hormones and the right sex hormones you are full of mojo and you're not tired and the mojo that you're full of is not mojo for the bedroom although you'll be full of that too you're full of mojo for life And right now there are systems in place designed to take away life energy from you. So what I want you to learn from this show, from this episode and from the show in general, from the entire body of my work over the last decade, I want you to learn how to have more energy because when you have more energy, who knows what you might do? It'll be what you choose. You might do what's right, even in the face of just utter bullshit. And that makes you dangerous. I will teach you to be dangerous this year. Not to harm other people, but to be dangerous because anyone who thinks for themselves because they have enough energy is by definition dangerous to those who wish to control them. So tune in on this episode, learn how to have more energy because it's worth it. Today's guest is Amy Shaw, double board certified MD with allergy and immunology focus, hormones, gut health. And she wrote a book called I'm So Effing Tired which is exactly how I felt when I weighed 300 pounds. And it's exactly how probably three quarters of people feel right now, but we put one foot in front of the other. So we share some common thinking and some areas where it isn't the same, but it's directionally similar. So we're going to go deep. Okay, what are the causes of why you're tired and what do you do about it? Dr. Shah, or Amy, as I'm going to call you, welcome back to Bulletproof Radio. It's only been 600 episodes since you're on.
2: Yeah, I know. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you so much. There are people who still reach out to me from that episode and say, I heard you on Dave's podcast. So um, I know how impactful your podcast is. So I'm so glad to be here. Thank you for having me.
0: Uh, you're, You're welcome. And by the way, I'm pretty choosy. You know, I have this rule: a doctor has to graduate magna cum laude from a big school. <laughs> oh, you did that, yeah. so okay. But like, you're very well qualified to come on the show. Just to be really clear, <laughs> oh, you're um, you. you come from the the cream of the crop in terms of of education and background, and just the way you think, I think is is worthy of sharing with people more than once. So thanks for putting yeah. it out there in a book that's accessible. And I want to know: were you so effing tired? Is this part of uh, part actually- of it? Were you so effing tired? Is this part of part actually?
2: Of it? <laughs> actually, this is exactly what happened to me for far too long. Our all of our concerns about why we're so tired just get brushed off, right? If you don't show up as visibly sick and failing on a lab test, you're basically pushed aside and said, "Okay, you're you know it must be you're getting older, you have a busy life." For women, it's like you're a mom, you're you're trying to do too many things. Um, and nobody really gives us any direction. We're left to our own defenses. And what I found is, the studies back that up. Only three percent of people who go in for fatigue or like complaints of tiredness even get a diagnosis. And so, and three percent is, by the way, is any random person walking into their doctor, um, and the chances of them diagnosing any problem is the same chances of you complaining of severe fatigue on a daily basis of getting an answer. So 3%. So I knew I was, I was in that 97% that didn't get an answer. And I knew that there was something wrong, but I couldn't put my finger on it because like I said, nobody could really tell me. So I started to look into, you know, what is this? Is this gut health? Is this hormone health? Is this immune health, like inflammation? And long story short, what I learned For myself, I shared on Instagram and through my blogs and podcasts, and that's what came together in this book. What I learned is that energy is a culmination of all three things uh, gut health, hormone health, and immune health. They're talking to each other at all points of the day. I had no idea that these three um areas communicate and they they talk to the brain constantly. And if any of those are broken, then you're gonna be tired. And so things like you know, short fasting, circadian fasting, syncing with nature and circadian rhythms, which is our internal clock, uh, and eating the right foods, really can make a difference. And of course, there's this whole component of mind-body health, which we sorely miss in Western culture. So what you eat, when you eat, and mind-body health were the three things that I came up with at the end.
0: Well, let's start with uh, gut health. Um, it has been even more of a focus just over the last 10 years, the work I've done with with Viome and just on yeah. the anti-aging book. It, Clearly, there's types of bacteria, number of bacteria, time of day, soluble fiber, insoluble fiber, which proteins, you know, which mm-hmm. things poke holes in your gut. I think I've got it kind of sorted out in my mind, <laughs> and I do my best in my books. But give me your MD carefully. <laughs> you know, you studied immunology and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Give me your like like short list. What the heck is going on with with our guts?
2: um, You know, Dave, it's funny because the microbiome research is so new that a lot of this is not stuff I learned in med school and probably that you didn't learn until, you know, probably in the last five or 10 years. Um, Biome is is one of the forefront companies that are at the forefront of this. And so one of the things I learned from them and then I found out the research studies to be so true is that the immune system is constantly in conversation. It's like they're on these like walkie talkies back in the day when you know, we didn't have cell phones, but the instant, instant talk between the gut bacteria and the immune cells. Hey, you know Dave just ate something really weird. I, I don't recognize it. I need you to come here and check it out. They create a little bit of inflammation around the food that you just ate or the toxin or whatever you just ingested and it tells the brain, hey, uh, we need to slow down because we need to figure out what's going on here. And this is exactly why inflammation causes fatigue because when you have a lot of foods or toxins that you're ingesting, your gut bacteria are constantly telling the immune system, hey, there's some weird things here we don't recognize, these are not food items, these are not safe, I need you to come and help me figure this out. And when they're working as a team together, and they realize that there's some danger or some things that they need to take care of, they send the brain a signal like, hey, there's a virus, bacteria, or we are dealing with this um, food, unknown food substance or toxin and we need to slow down so that we can fix the problem. That's why when you feel sick, um, that inflammation signal is what makes you tired and makes your body know that it's time to rest and repair. So gut health is at the key, uh, what you eat, and how your gut communicates is the key to fatigue um, and getting your energy back. And you know, Dave, as much as anybody, I mean, I know you've told the story, but when you were unhealthy, you know, 300 something pounds, and you were always tired because your body was in a constant state of inflammation and inflammation is fatigue And the, the brain gets a signal that we need to slow down because we need to fix the problem here. So if you're trying to really improve your gut health, it starts with what you eat.
0: Doesn't that start more with what you don't eat?
2: <clears throat> yeah, that's that's true. What you don't <laughs> right. eat.
0: Five worst foods for your gut. What are they? Yeah.
2: Uh, five worst foods for your gut. Um, sugar. Um, and, you know, we're talking about the type of sugar that we get in our Western world, not necessarily, you know, from your blueberries. Um, we're talking about um, processed gluten, um, not necessarily just gluten, just processed flours in general, but gluten is probably the number by, by and far the number one processed um, flour that we consume. Okay. Um, so you're saying
0: even if you don't have celiac disease, it's bad for your gut. It can most- Newsflash. Yeah. Yes, it is, guys. It, yeah. I know you can say I don't know like, it doesn't matter. Gluten is just matter. not a good food unless you're starving to death, in which case it's better than starving to death. But it's just never good for you. Are right. we overstating and
2: the case? If 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 99% of our gluten isn't hyper-processed in the form of cakes and cookies and crackers, we can make an argument that if you lived in, you know, the rural country, you know, Sardinia and you were able to make cracked wheat bowls with uh, veggies and You know, you can argue that it can be a part of a healthful diet. I I definitely could argue; uh, somebody could argue that. And so, there's never a hundred percent on anything. But we live in a world where if you take out processed flours, and basically that means gluten, you are going to be doing favors to your gut health. Um, So sugar, gluten, and then we go to processed dairy. So dairy is a harder one because for most people, many people. Uh, whole dairy, raw dairy, full uh, unprocessed dairy can be fine, especially um, in forms of um, hard cheeses or yogurts and cultured kefir, et cetera. But when you're talking about typical Why not process,
0: soft cheese? Why hard?
2: Um, you know, hard cheese has less lactose and it's easier to digest. When we're talking about gut health, um, we uh, really talk about Um, The, you know, you can definitely have some really good raw soft cheeses or unprocessed, but hard cheeses actually naturally take out a lot of the gut irritants, the lactose. Um, So it tends to be one of the first foods that people can add back if they've been avoiding dairy for a long time. So one thing I'll tell you is all these foods, um, if you fix your gut, you can start to add them back in small amounts and you'll notice, oh, Actually, you know, I can tolerate uh, this here and there now that I fixed my gut. So, um, dairy um, is that.
0: Let me ask you uh, well, from from that perspective. I got to go with you before we finish your list. Yeah. Over the course of the years, I've gotten myself okay. I'm super healthy. I feel really great, and it's okay. I can handle it. And then I add it back in, and have just a little bit. Then I have a little bit. And then I have a little bit, I'm like, oh, actually, the next morning, oh, there's the skin doesn't look right or you know, my my low back is sore or whatever. And it feels like every time I do that, I'm punching myself in the face. And I finally was just like, you know what? These aren't compatible with me. And just the fact that I can tolerate it, it's still taking something away from my vitality.
2: Oh, 100%. Is that common? Yeah, 100%. That's a sugar, right? Um, If you think about it, Dave, we all know, most of us now that are in tune, Who's people who are listening, who are watching right now, Most of us know how crappy we feel after we have a big night of gluten or dairy or sugar, right? But we still choose to have it in small amounts in certain times of, you know, celebration or in, um, and what, so what I say is when you fix your gut in a real uh, comprehensive way, you can have small amounts of each of these foods if you choose. Um, without because you can take throwing, a
0: hit without feeling it. Exactly.
2: It's like being but you're punched. still taking a hit. It's yeah, not good for yeah, you. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. It's like being punched in the face, um, like you said. <laughs> but you can recover because you're not getting punched every single day and every single meal. Uh, but you know, the thing is, our brains are wired to like sugar. Um, you know, we are literally born liking sugar. So it's not. Oh, yeah you know, it's not so crazy to say, um, you know, I have something sweet here and there. It's not, you're not failing uh, because your existence uh, was created to wire your brain to want to have more sugar because sugar releases the dopamine and the serotonin. And um, we create memories around sugar, even. So, um, and it's learned behaviors from when you're a child. So, These are hard foods to completely get rid of, all three of those. I grew up in an Indian um, uh, upbringing. I was an immigrant, and dairy was like literally a huge part of every meal. There was yogurt, there was milk, there was cheese, Mm -hmm. there was um, fermented. It was everything. So for me, I really, really struggled with completely going zero with dairy. So I have it here and there. And just like you, if I don't go off the deep end, I'm okay. Um, but if I have it and I'm doing multiple doses of it, um, then I definitely feel a difference in my energy levels and my gut health, my bloating and my skin. So those are kind of real big factors. So those are the big three. Okay. Then um, processed okay. oils. I think that may have been a- Make yes. number two after sugar. I think I just skipped over it because it's something we don't hear as much. These oils, r- literally every restaurant and every fast food, not even just fast food, just restaurants in general, we're literally consuming oils that have been oxidized um, and contain trans fats. Um, these are this is the reason that we are aging ourselves. We are feeling lethargic. We are gaining weight. We are feeling inflamed. All of the above. How do you feel about, I know you're a big fan of um, oil in general, but I think processed oils, the wrong fats, um, do a lot of harm to our bodies. I know you're a big fan of um, oil in general, but I think processed oils, the wrong fats, um, do a lot of harm to our bodies.
0: For 10 years, a Bulletproof Diet has been low omega-6. Mm-hmm. Yes. It, you don't have to get rid of it entirely because you can't. Grass-fed beef is around 2% um, polyunsaturated mm-hmm. oil. So you should stick to around 2%. And that means yeah. you can't drink olive oil, but you can have a tablespoon of high-end stuff here and there. But you actually watch it and you just stay away from the other garbage oils that are mostly sold. I think it's more important than sugar, to be honest. Yeah,
2: yeah. I um, think pe- it's people right don't
0: eat. If you don't eat omega-6 oil for two years, half your cell membranes get made out of good fats, and yeah. then you can eat some sugar, and your insulin receptors work magically. Yeah. So, but it's it's not a, you know, tomorrow I can have a ton of sugar because today I didn't have omega-6 oil. It, it's a time thing.
2: Yeah, and I think the omega-6 oil thing is something that the general population really kind of, you know, doesn't realize. They're kind of doing everything right, but then they're eating out at restaurants that use you know, traditional vegetable oils to cook. Um, They're eating high heat, um, those foods at high heat, uh, which is really, really inflammatory to their bodies. Um, This is why, you know, fried foods um, gets a bad rap because of course, if you're frying a food and um, at high heats with the wrong oils, that's just a ton of basically inflammatory omega-6 doing your gut no good. Um, so those are kind of the big, big ones. Of course, we have all okay. many, many, many toxins and we could go, go, go deep. But those are like, if you take out those four, um, I think you're in pretty good shape. If you can get control over that, uh, that group of foods and because the okay. other side is really
0: sugar, yeah. grains, Uh, Dairy, sugar grains, bad oil and dairy. Yeah. But butter, I'm guessing is okay, because it has no lactose.
2: Ghee, ghee and butter are the dairy that I think are um, allowable in small amounts. But depending on your history, like if you have um, cardiac disease, a triple bypass or whatever, you really do have to watch um, even your oil consumption, but accept it. That's where I think people get confused. So in the medical world, they say no oil because what they're looking at is the data from people who've had severe cardiac disease, um, cats, et cetera. So if you're in that group, then you really need to
0: watch. Yeah.
2: You need to, if you're in a group of, uh, you know, you already had a triple bypass, you should not be adding fats, um, to all your foods, that there's a difference between someone who's healthy, exercising, active, and someone who is really suffering with major inflammation of their arteries, um, and really just one—if you could think about it—as kind of like one more dose of uh, inflammation could put them over the edge. So, and you really don't want to play it,
0: with it's that. interesting. I. You and I probably don't agree on that because all of that advice comes from Dean Ornish who studied meditation and mindfulness with a crap diet that allows some vegetable oils and lots of sugar. Oh, look, it's good for your heart, but if you take out the diet, you get the same results from the meditation. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, show me your C-reactive proteins, show Mm -hmm. me your LPPLA2, and if you eat butter or whatever other fat and those go up, then don't eat the butter or fat. But if those don't go up, the butter or fat's probably going to make your mitochondria healthier. Am I nuts for thinking that way?
2: Uh, No, I agree with you. I think that there's definitely (laughs) some room. Here's the thing. It's different for me and you probably. I'm not sure about your personal history or family history, but if you are not someone who has a severe cardiac history personally or family history, you're in a different My dad had a
0: double bypass, and I'm in the top 7% of cardiac risk genetically, according to the DNA company.
2: Oh, interesting. But I
0: monitor my markers. And funny, <laughs> when I do this bulletproof thing with 50% or more of my calories from saturated fat, all of my cardiac markers are really good. But when yeah. I go on a low-fat diet, they get worse.
2: I think that the I'm not a believer in eating a super low-fat, zero-oil diet for sure. But I do think that you really do have to watch the quality of your oils. Because what happens yes. is you, Dave... Own a company and you have access to all the best oils. The typical person that I see in a clinic or I'm talking to, they think of eating high fat as being able to go to their favorite fast food and restaurant and and have french fries and order, you know, the processed meat without the bun and, you know, all, and they're consuming a ton of unsafe uh, fats. And so that's, I think, where it gets hairy, because if you take this on a population level, um, you have to get people to buy into or restaurants or, you know, governments um, to change the quality of the fats that we're using. Because if you just put someone, you know, who has minimal Control or education around it, you're going to get someone who's eating a ton of inflammatory foods. Um, That's why. That's why I think the gluten thing works for us, right? Like when you tell someone no gluten, they automatically can't eat the cakes, and they can't go to Krispy Kreme, and they can't go to Pizza Hut, and they can't. And like half the battle is getting you out of those places um, and getting your brain to um, not be addicted to those places anymore. I mean, the dopamine circuits that are hijacked. Yeah the dopamine circuits are hijacked, um, in our lives. Like when you were a kid and your dad brought or mom brought you to a certain fast food place, say McDonald's, I'll just get, take an easy example. And it lit up your dopamine receptors and released all this, um, a, a pulse of dopamine. Your brain remembers that experience and it wires you to want that experience again. So if you think about it evolutionarily, it makes sense, right? You're walking past, you're walking in your forest, a jungle, and you see a bush full of berries and you're not even hungry really. You're, you know, just walking around, but you see this bush full of berries and it's beautiful and it's juicy and you eat it. And every time you walk that path, you will stop in your tracks and search for that bush. And it doesn't matter if you're hungry, doesn't matter. Your body is, your dopamine receptors are made to remember that because it's helping us um, to survive, right? Saying, yeah. hey, remember that bush. If you ever get hungry or if you ever need it, you got to go there. And, but unfortunately now it's, you know, McDonald's and now it's it, those things.
0: It's so weird after probably five years or so, it would be my guesstimate, your brain remaps. And mm-hmm. people say, "Oh, it's by the McDonald's." or I'm up to Canada. It's by the Tim Hortons. I'm like, I don't know where that is. I'm like, how could you not know where McDonald's is? I'm like, because I don't see it. Like, <laughs> yeah. I drive past it, and my brain doesn't identify it as food or useful, so it it gets erased it, from my map. It's the weirdest thing. It's but
2: great, I, right? Like, it's it's amazing yeah. how we can reprogram our uh, our cravings and our body to want different foods um, based on how we kind of uh, get you want to get a dopamine release and you want to get a serotonin release from the foods that you eat, but it's going to be different from the dopamine release that you used to get from, you know, when you were driving through those processed food companies. So I think that if you took out those four foods that we talked about for say a month and started to see how you feel and improve your gut health by doing other things like intermittent fasting, uh, like sleeping, like seeing sunlight, um, spending time in nature, Uh, doing a little bit of mindfulness, uh, check getting out of your to-do list, these things can transform your gut health and then in turn transform your energy levels and your long-term health. So when we talk about anti-aging, these are anti-aging activities and foods.
0: I I did something this week. There's a local restaurant that has grass-fed stuff um, that's open with a patio because apparently patios are safe where Mm -hmm. I live. Don't ask me why. Uh, compared to other things, um, yeah. but they brought me my grass fed steak with a huge amount of French fries. Okay, this is a high end place. It's, the oil is probably fresh, and I'm like, I'm gonna throw those away. I'm not gonna eat those. I know exactly how I feel afterwards. My son, he's lectin sensitive potatoes, and he knows it. And he already ordered something that had another lectin in it that he knows. I'm like, look, you're getting old enough to feel your own pain. Yeah. Um, so you know, he eats a few French fries, he eats the other thing. And my daughter who's not lectin sensitive, I'm like, oh, you can eat them. Like, see if you get pimples tomorrow. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> you, you get a dose of on medicine. Yeah. It sounds like, I feel pretty okay. I'm like, yeah, that's funny. You have muscle knots where you didn't. <laughs> and then a couple of days later, he gets stung by a wasp and it swells up like no one's business because he has systemic inflammation from his food. And I'm like, teehee, see what you did? Right. And then the next day he eats more bad food, which he, I mean, they've never been allowed to do this. But I'm like, yeah. look, you're going to be a teenager. You need to understand yeah. if you punch yourself in the face, it hurts. So... Then the day after that, he eats more stuff. And then, of course, he gets hives because his immune system's already activated. So now I'm asking you as an immunologist and yeah. you know, all the medical stuff like that. You know, I want my kids to be able to feel the fact that they're digging a hole. And like, yeah. well, I did it once and it didn't bother me. Therefore, it's safe. And adults have that same thinking. Like, and so I was trying to find an analogy. Like you're digging. You don't want to hit the water table when you're digging because then you're going to fill up and drown. Yeah. So you're digging, digging, digging. And then something unforeseen happens like a wasp. And there you go. Now you're, you're going to feel like crap for a while.
2: Absolutely. And is that I mean, a good
0: analogy? And how much damage do you think I did? I don't. Think I feel
2: like much, you're but. talking about my kids because my okay. kids, <laughs> you know, are 11 and 13, and I don't believe in completely restricting and being controlling of on their food. I just think that it can have the opposite effect. We all know. Um, that there is data that shows that, you know, being too controlling with their food can almost cause, especially with teenagers, cause an opposite reaction. So I do the same thing. I let them experiment, see how bad they feel, um, you know, when they feel like they're bloated, they are inflamed. And during this time, allergies are a perfect way um, to know uh, if you are inflamed, because a lot of people, and this is not true for everyone, like there are people who have allergies who are he- eating healthy and doing everything right for them. So, no, giving them the things that make them inflamed is a part of our process. I mean, look, think about both of us. Like, I ate inflammatory foods for most of my life until about 10 years ago. I was a, m- a nutrition major in college, okay? Yet I ate bagels. Um, and I would take at the bagel shop, there was like, um, this jelly bean, like canister, uh, where you, it was called jelly bellies and they had all different flavors. Like each bin was a different flavor. Yeah. And then you took a bag and then you scooped in like all the different flavors. And literally I would eat my bagel. I'd have my juice or whatever sweet drink. And then I would take a bag of jelly bellies with me so I could study. Um, and I'd sit there and I was thinking to myself, I'm like, and I was studying nutrition. Like, that is so sad that that was considered. And, you know, I have to say, Dave, at my conferences, my nutrition conferences, they had uh, breakfast cereals, they had donuts, um, there was muffins, um, it was sponsored by all the big companies that you know now. Um, and I don't know if things have changed. This was you know, 20 years Probably ago. Not. But, the American um,
0: Dietitian Association, it's like, oh, they're they are straight up in league with the American Diabetic Association to cause diabetes. And like, yeah. they're like, I'm licensed. <laughs> you should do what I say. I'm like, dude, you you weigh twice what you should weigh. I'm not doing what you do or what you say. I'm sorry. Yeah, so like, I show mean, me a healthy dietitian that's who's registered. There's like 10 of them and they're functional.
2: <laughs> no, I mean, the, here's the thing. We, my parents came from India. They were eating, uh, they weren't eating breakfast cereals in the morning. They were walking a ton. Um, they were eating meals with friends and family. Um, there was no soda, um, and um, you know, sweets were for holidays, uh, just because they were expensive and special. Um, and then we moved to America, and you know, there was Coke in our home. We had Pizza Hut, um, and we they no longer you know made hot breakfast. It was uh, cereals, sweet cereals, milk, um, juice, and. I mean, you can imagine what happened. So basically my dad was diagnosed with diabetes in his early thirties. He has a a heavy family history of um, type two diabetes, heart disease, all inflammatory disorders. Um, But this happened literally within five years of moving to the US and um, he has five brothers. And guess what? Each of those five brothers were diagnosed with diabetes type two and heart disease. And so This is like an N of five, but you can just see how drastically you can change your life with just food, you know, eating around the clock. You know, one of the things we talk about is intermittent fasting. And, you know, in India, um, even, you know, just 10, 15 years ago, uh, most people didn't, you know, there was no eating uh, late at night. There was no 24 hour there, you know, still isn't mostly, but there's no 24 hour drive throughs. There's nobody's eating dinners at, you know, midnight. So basically you ate your dinner um, and after sundown, you kind of like just ate something really, really small or nothing at all. And then you slept overnight. And then when you wake up, you didn't eat first thing in the morning. You kind of did your work. You kind of got things ready. And then maybe an hour or two, maybe three, um, you would have your first meal. And so it was just this classic, very natural intermittent fasting that we have yeah. just
0: lost. Yeah. And- in fact, you're reminding me of uh, Sachin Panda, whose work yeah. I feature in a couple of books, who's been on the show. And I'm, you probably know Sachin.
2: Yeah, I love, right? I he, love his work. He you know,
0: obviously, also from India, very circadian, you know, mm-hmm. Salk Institute, circadian studying kind of guy. Uh, And he talks about how his mom in India, uh, he's like, just don't eat after the sun goes down. And after two or three months, her type 2 diabetes resolved just from changing the timing of food. And you talk about circadian fasting in in your I'm So Effing Tired book. And you call it, uh, what do you say? You say it's the fountain of energy no one knows about. So really, it's all in that universe. What does it do for your energy? And what do you write about in your book? Mm -hmm. For 25 years, I've had a strong passion for understanding the science behind why we age and what we can do about it. One of the most groundbreaking discoveries in the last two decades is senolytics. Senolytics are plant-derived or pharmaceutical ingredients that can help your body drop old, worn-out cells. Scientists call them senescent cells, and in my books, I call them zombie cells. As you age, those senescent cells build up in your body. They live for a long time, and they eat up your energy. There is a hack for this. It's called Qualia Synolytic. Your podcast sponsor, Neurohacker Collective, created Qualia Synolytic. It eliminates those zombie cells and has a clinical study that supports its effectiveness. I really felt a difference in how my body moved after just a couple months on Qualia Synolytic. It's upped my energy level even more, and my joints feel really good. If you're over 30 and you want to use a clinically tested formula to help you feel younger, try Qualia synolytic. To get younger now, visit neurohacker.com slash dave and try it risk-free for up to hundred days. Use code Dave at checkout to get 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash Dave. Use code Dave. You're listening to the human upgrade with Dave Asprey. Uh, what do you say? You say it's the fountain of energy no one knows about. So really, th- th- it's all in that universe. What does it do for your energy? And what do you write about in your book? It's
2: it's the one thing, Dave, I would say that maybe you've heard of, you know, getting rid of process um, oils, you know, gluten, dairy. Uh, but the thing that I found was life changing for me as a physician, as a nutrition major, as a wellness expert, was this concept of living with circadian rhythms? I found that to be life changing for myself. So that's why I talk about it so much because it's free, it's accessible, it makes so much scientific sense. The Nobel Prize in Medicine went to um, the biology of circadian rhythms, it affects 80% of our genes. And so, you know, getting mm-hmm. sunlight in the morning. Is so important um, because when you get light through, you know, a small light in your bedroom or, you know, a um, overhead light, you're getting about, you know, maybe 500 lux or uh, 800 lux and maybe 1,000 if you have like bright, bright fluorescent lighting. When you go outside, even before sunrise on a cloudy day, you get 10,000 lux. And on a sunny day, you get 100,000 lux, and this is literally telling your retina to signal to your brain that it's time to wake up, be energized, start that circadian clock, start metabolism, um, and start like focus and energy. So that's why you feel so good when you get it when you're on vacation. You get a dose, big dose of natural light in the morning, and um, when I tell people that, they're like really shocked. Like so many people. Uh, had messaged me and say, well, I live in a place that's really, you know, hard to get outside or it's my schedule doesn't allow for. it." So I really realized what that even something as simple as getting bright light in the morning is really difficult for Americans. Um, And then the same issue happens late at night. I said two to three hours before bed. So say like after around sundown, maybe a little bit after sundown, two to three hours before bed, stop eating. And, you know, I was addicted to food too. I get it. Like I couldn't go more than an hour or two without eating. So I get it. If you, you know, stop eating at seven, uh, a lot of us will feel like around nine, nine 30, you'll feel kind of that tinge of like, I want a snack. I want to eat something before bed. It's because our bodies are on the sugar roller coaster. So try to push through if you can and, or you have a tea or a coffee or something um, without many calories, I like allow up to about 40 calories as long as it's not sugar. Um, and then you sleep. You sleep at you know good eight hours. You wake up, maybe you do a fasted workout in the sunlight, and that alone will fix so much of your energy, gut health, immune, and hormone issues. Like that one thing. If you get nothing else out of this talk today,
0: it's it's kind of ridiculous how important fasting and sun exposure is, and. You know, that's one of the reasons my company, True Dark, has the, the glasses yeah. that are patented with multiple filters. I wear those every night because I get more deep sleep and then I wake up and I feel good anyway and then I get some sunshine and move a little bit. And I do this, except in Canada where I can't because yeah. it's winter. Yeah. I have 240 watts of halogen lights, mm-hmm. uh, which are shining on me right now. And <laughs> all winter long, I do that just to get enough lux in. It's less yeah. about the frequent or the spectrum than it is about the brightness. Yeah. So it's doable. But if you're sitting there under fluorescent lights and LED lights going, what do I feel like crap? Why am I so yeah. effing tired? To paraphrase the title yeah. of your book. Well, it's the combination of light and food timing and the what you eat. And I love the way you've laid it out in your book. But you also it's, talk about hormones in a way that yeah. I didn't talk about in, in my book. And I think that you should share that with the audience. Yeah. Tell me about like like cortisol and testosterone and estrogen yeah. and thyroid and the stuff. Walk me through your thinking about that because those okay. matter. So I just didn't put it in my fasting book.
2: For yeah, exactly. For anyone who is wondering about how hormones work, I laid out to you exactly how I understood it finally after so many years of learning about hormones. Because everybody teaches you about hormones and these pieces like. Oh, here's thyroid hormone. Um, you know, there's adrenal hormones, and we think of these as like all these separate systems. And so, the way I learned about it is going to blow your mind. You're gonna now you're going to learn how hormones work. Finally, so what happens is that there's a master hormone that starts the entire cascade in your brain. It's called GnRH, gonadotropin releasing hormone. And it's a pulsatile hormone. And that hormone is really sensitive. It's sensitive to stressors, emotional or physical. So too much working out, too much fasting, too much stress in your life, all of those things can throw off that pulse and that pulse will um, stop being so regular. That's why we get so many hormonal imbalances from stress and from uh, over-exercising or over-fasting. And-
0: so. Yeah. Oh, sorry. I thought I heard a, a pause to interrupt you. Jimmy to talk on you. Um, tell me how to control my GNRH.
2: Yeah, your GNRH is the master controller of your hormone. You watch the stress level that's happening in your body, whether it's physical or mental, emotional, all of those stressors will stop that pulse. So it makes sense, right, Dave? If we were in a time of famine, or more. Your body does not want to procreate. It does not want to have Mm -hmm. babies. It does not want the hormonal functions of our body to create um, a a child or pregnancy during that time. Um, And, you know, this is even more uh, wired in a sensitive way for women because of that. And now, um, and, you know, same with famine, you want to shut down during famine, you want to save your resources. You don't want to be, um, you know, using up all these resources on hormones. So during times of stress, we are wired to stop that GNRH pulse. Um, but we do this to ourselves. Like Olympic athletes know this all the time. They over, when they overtrain, um, they get hormonal imbalances. Uh, when we are stressed, uh, you know, this, uh, many, many women suffer with infertility in our world. Um, many women suffer with hormone imbalances in our world. And partially it's because of our diet culture, because that's physical, that's stress on the body. but It's partially because of emotional stress and the stress of, um, you know, the way we live right now. Uh, so you start that cascade. So that's the beginning of hormonal balance. If you're talking about, hey, I want to balance my hormones, start with that. Start with thinking about, hey, GMRH is really, really sensitive to stress. So I got to remember to, you know, that I don't want to signal to my body that it's famine or that it's war or that I'm in distress all the time because then my whole hormonal cascade will shut off. Um, And then that, That triggers everything. Then it's like a hormonal highway. The GnRH um, signals to the thalamus, the hypothalamus, and the pituitary. The pituitary goes to the thyroid. Then they go to the adrenals, the ovaries, and testes. um, You know, pancreas. It is a highway, and then it gets feedback from those uh, those hormones those hormonal centers. So, for example, if the thyroid isn't isn't functioning properly. It'll send signals to the brain like, hey, I need help, like I'm I'm not, I'm congested here, the hormonal highways, there's a car crash, you know, so you'll get symptoms of thyroid uh, issues but you're also going to get symptoms of other hormonal imbalances when your thyroid is off uh, because it's a hormonal highway. It all works together. So, you know, if there's an, if there's an accident on exit 15 or whatever in New York or LA, the entire system is slowed down or shut down. That's actually how hormones work. Um, So once you understand that, you'll understand that, yeah, it's not as easy as fixing your adrenals. Um, boosting your thyroid. It's about fixing, unclogging that entire highway. Um, It's about fixing that GNRH and all the stuff that's happening in your brain. And it's about fixing it as a system and not singular hormones.
0: Isn't fasting and and exercise, aren't those stressors? Aren't those going to screw up your GNRH cycle?
2: Yeah, I love that question because it's exactly um, what we want to tell people, right? So any kind of uh, hormone stressor, like exercise, like intermittent fasting, even like sauna or cold therapy is a hermetic stressor. But guess what? What doesn't kill us makes us stronger in small amounts. So if you are pushed a little bit by your dad to you know work on your writing, you will get better. But if you are pushed so much that you end up hating it, um, you might quit altogether. So that's how our body is, right? Like we want little hormetic stressors, um, but we don't want sustained and, uh, uh, you know, very, very heavy sustained hormonal stressors can be bad. Like if you are doing a workout every single day of the week at 5 Mm a.m. and you decided, You know, you don't need more than five hours sleep. And you decided, hey, I'm going to do my longest intermittent fast on these days. And, you know, you have a little emotional stress at work because your boss doesn't like, uh, you know, something that you're working on. And you end up putting too much stress and too much sustained stress on your body. You're not going to get the benefits of the fasting, of the exercise, of any of those things. So you really have to only pull on a few levers at once. You don't want all the levers to be pulled all at once. Otherwise, the body feels sustained yeah. stress and your GnRH turns off.
0: And this is that fasting trap that I know that, that you're aware of. And you know it can happen with almost any exercise. It's good for me. I'll just do six hours a day. And you know, <laughs> yeah. there you go. There's someone with no GnRH. And then, oh, fasting is so good for me, I'll do it all the time. Oh, starvation is bad for GnRH, but short periods of fasting are good. And that leads to the question, how long is the right length of fast?
2: That depends on you. Um,
0: what? It's not a single answer? <laughs> no. Exactly. Thank yeah, okay. you for saying that. <laughs>
2: yeah. I mean, it's like telling someone, like, how far should I run? Like, you know, you would never tell someone how far they should run without knowing nothing else about them. Um, have you ran a marathon before? You may be running a lot longer than someone who's a couch potato trying their first run ever. Um, and same exactly with fasting. If you're a couch potato version of a faster, then starting with 16 hours even will be too long for you. Um, And, you know, it's not to say that no one can jump into 16 hours, but almost no one can. Um, So start with 12 hours, Uh, do 7 to 7, 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. If you are a master faster, someone who has been like, who's Dave Asprey, someone who's been doing it for years, then maybe throwing in a dinner to dinner fast, you know, 24 hour fast here and there, um, is actually not going to be too much of a stretch for you. Like I bet you, it actually um, feels good. Yeah, um, because your body got used to it. It's like a um, anything. Your your metabolism can adapt. It can learn. It can stretch. Uh, going from that metabolic switch, uh, being able to switch from using glucose for fuel to using fat as for fuel, and going back and forth, is a learned skill that your body can get stronger. Uh, with. So it's like, you know, the first time you lift weights, you're gonna, you know, only be able to do five pounds and 10 pounds, but then you're going to be able to lift big weights. Mm -hmm. And that's how, um, fasting is as well. Not to say just like exercise, not to say that everyone has to run that marathon. Not everyone has to do the three day fast. Um, it's not necessary. It's not really even you know, beneficial for everyone. Um, so you really want to fit, pick the fasting interval that's right for you. So when I'm talking to people who haven't fasted much, I say, start with 12 hours, master that, then throw in some push fast. So in my book, basically what I say is every other day, throw in a push fast. So you might do three days of easy fasting, whatever easy means to you, and three days of push fasting, which is a stretch on your traditional um, fast. And then you take one day off. And that's how I structure it.
0: I, I like that approach. It's not the same every day. Start yeah. with 12 hours. I find most people can go longer than 12 hours if they're using fasting aids, like the stuff mm-hmm. that I talk about, stuff that you talk about. But over fasting to start, it's, it's like, oh, I'm gonna go from, I haven't worked out in 10 years to doing CrossFit <laughs> every day.
2: So yeah, You're exactly.
0: going to end up Filtering your muscle mass through your kidneys—it's yeah. yes. it's not good. And you might work your way up to CrossFit, but you might want to just be a little bit kind. So fasting is the same way. And I think in your book, because you tie in hormones as a part of this, you talk about adrenals. It it makes a lot of sense. Like you learn to fast, just like you learn to go to the gym, you learn to do yoga or meditate or anything else. It, yeah. It's a process. So and I, it's I like it's
2: something that it's you know, I feel like Dave. It's such a big part of every single culture up till about 50 years ago. Um, You know, cultures around the world use fasting um, for short and long periods of time. Um, And most cultures, actually every culture in the world before microwaves and refrigerators and 24-hour drive-throughs we're doing circadian fasting. And evolutionarily, obviously, that makes so much sense. Biologically, that also makes so much sense. You can't be doing everything at once in your body. So your cells also have to pick a time um, to do things. So your cells say, you know what? I'm going to do the metabolism stuff during the day. And then at night, I'm going to focus on repair and renewal. And so when you're not sleeping and when you're eating late into the night, you are shortchanging that repair and renewal. And when you are living with, um, the biological circadian rhythms, you are going to not only feel more energetic, but you're going to have better metabolism, you're going to anti-age, you're going to have better repair and renewal overnight. And so I think for all of us, whether you're doing it for long-term health or you're doing it just for energy and looking better, either way, um, this is the way to go.
0: You know, I, I 100% agree. It it does work. It really does. You have you have some other stuff in the book that's pretty cool. Um, I've written a lot about ashwagandha over the years and adaptogenic herbs and you talk about that as well. But you talk about another herb from India that I'm familiar with but I haven't actually ever written about to the best of my memory. And it's called amla berry. Can you talk about amla?
2: Yeah, amla berry is one of the most prized Ayurvedic herbs, just like ashwagandha. You know, ashwagandha is used in Ayurveda for um, energy, for focus, for balancing hormones. Um, And amla berry is actually used in um, Ayurveda so often. In fact, the concoctions um, in Ayurveda that are for digestion, for gut health, for energy, um, often almost always contain amla berry. Um, so triphala, one of the most um, commonly used or known Ayurvedic uh, concoctions or you know whatever we want to call it, but very, very good for digestion and balancing your doshas, that has amla berry. And so I was so shocked to see it um, that I, when I did the research, I found that it's like ashwagandha, it's just a less known adaptogen. Um, adaptogens, for those of you who don't know, are it doesn't add or subtract hormones, it just kind of balances things out. So it adapts um, to what your body needs at that moment. And that's why adaptogens can be so powerful because they don't really, you know, um, uh, add hormones, which we know can be really dangerous in our bodies. And they're just balancing things out. So I love ashwagandha. I love amla berry. I think they're very hormone balancing. I love vitamin D. Um, that's one of the things I think you do too. I love omega 3s. Those are kind of like my go to. Yeah. I am not a big supplement pusher. i not meaning that, not to say that there aren't amazing supplements out there. I just, I'm such a minimalist when it comes to um, what I add to my regimen. And so I talked about a few of those things. Um, you know, there are other. Besides omegas, uh, vitamin D, uh, ashwagandha, amla berry, there are a bunch of things that I put in there as things to consider or try. But those are like my go to's if you had to pick my top um, supplements that um, either I use for myself or in my practice.
0: All right. And for uh, if you're listening to that, that was A M L A. It's not omelet berries. All the Upgrade Collective <laughs> people are sitting here on check and checking. Where do I find omelet berries? No. Yeah. Amla. Yeah.
2: Amla. A M L A. Omelet berry. And it's actually really delicious. Um, if you ever go to India or any kind of Southeast Asian country um, and you get amla, um, it's a delicious food and really, really good for your health.
0: You ready for some questions from the yeah, Upgrade Collective? let do it.
2: Let's do it. Let's,
0: all right. Let's bring uh, Susan in, or uh, Sue actually. I'm not seeing Susan. Where are you? There you are. Hey, Susan. Go ahead and go ahead and say something.
1: Uh, thank you very much for sharing your top tips around nature, when, what to eat, as well as mind-body balance. So, my question for you is: If you were to write a prescription for each person that comes to see you in order to increase their wellness, what would those, that prescription consist of, particularly your top three?
2: I love that. What an intelligent question. Um, right off the bat, I will tell you number one is sleep. Like If you had nothing else, um, if I could tell you nothing else, like if my hands were tied and I was like, okay, I can only give you one re- recommendation that will change your health and your life, it's sleep um, by and far. Number two is nature um, it, because of the circadian rhythms I t- talked about, but also because of um, the way our brains are wired to receive nature and calm ourselves. Um, so, number one is sleep, number two is nature. And, oh gosh, if I had to just, just do one more, um, I think I would do the timing. I think I would do circadian fasting uh, because I think that, you know, most of us know how to eat well or um, that we know kind of what our vices are, but we often are so addicted to foods um, and are so used to this sugar roller coaster that we're really, really going off the rails. Uh, most Americans are eating 16 hours a day. They're just pausing to go to sleep. Um, and then waking up and eating again. So my third prescription would be um, circadian
1: fasting.
0: Beautiful. Thank you for that. And it, it is a really intelligent question. Um, thanks, Susan. Guys, Susan's in the Upgrade Collective. If you like to hang out with people like her, go to com. Let me spend a year teaching you all the cool stuff I know. Let's kick on over to Clubhouse and see if anyone wants to ask a question of a double board certified, <sighs> soon to be New York Times bestselling author you guys have a, a question you'd like to ask her, uh, raise your hand on Clubhouse and I will put you up. Let's bring up Rehan. Okay. Hey. Um, it was mentioned uh, about uh, the, the gut microbiome. Uh, this is a typical question I always ask in a lot of the med tech on Clubhouse for a lot of doctors and physicians um, that use uh, testing. Um, I'm curious, you know, I, I just, I feel like there's not a lot of confidence in, in one form of testing to, since the microbiome is such a unique signature in all of us, um, do you think that the confidence in that testing is going to increase? How is it going to increase? What's the, what's your prediction on how it's going to be used in clinical medicine? Um, And and how early uh, can we see
1: that? Thank you. This is Rayon. Rayon,
2: what a great question. This is the million dollar, billion dollar question, really, because, now that we know so much about the microbiome, we even know that there are happy bacteria, there are schizophrenic bacteria, there are fat bacteria, there are depressed bacteria. There are bacteria that can really change um, our lives, our uh, disease status. Um, but there's no one um, validated test yet. And what you're saying is, you know, it's kind of like predicting um, when or how that will happen. I'm 100% confident that it will happen and it's happening now. We're getting more and more studies. Um, There are many, many, I think there are Oxford universities running amazing work. Uh, Tim Spector is doing amazing work on it. Biome is doing amazing work on understanding the microbiome through AI. I mean, I'm 100% confident that we are going to have better accessible and usable testing measures in the coming years. Uh, but the problem is we don't, I can't really predict when or who or how um, it will happen, but it's 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 on its way. What do you think, Dave?
0: I think it's on its way. Uh, I'm probably most interested in Viome's approach because they're looking not just at which ones are present, but what are they doing? Yeah. You know, like what are they expressing with RNA? And I think that's kind of the future. Um, but at the same time, if you don't know, the set of genes in the gut bacteria, what can they express? And then what are they expressing? You have to know both, because then you might want to just kill them all with an antibiotic, which is <laughs> shocking. Dave's talking about antibiotics. Well, maybe, you look, if it's that big of a shed show, maybe you go on a 72-day you know, water fast or something. Yeah, But that's kind of hard to do and expensive. So maybe you're saying, okay, it's worth a reset here or a fecal transplant because you just don't have it. Or you just need to change what you eat to turn it on and encourage it to grow. I think we're very near to being able to give you good advice on doing that. Yeah,
2: um, I, I like love, that all the uh,
0: companies you mentioned are good.
2: I love the idea of fecal transplants. I mean, it was it was this therapy that is life changing for people, yet it was banned in the U.S. And uh, well, all
0: the good ones are. That's part of yeah. the system.
2: Yeah. yeah, and and it was literally because you know companies are scared. Like, wow, this can replace. So many medications, probiotics, um, uh, gut health, that whole industry would be shut off if we could figure out a safe and easy way to do fecal transplants from very, very healthy people into very, very sick people. Imagine if you were someone suffering from um, a severe uh, illness of the GI tract and you were able to be cured. I mean, this is really cool stuff, Um, but- uh, so I, I'm yeah. a huge fan of uh, that science, um, and it's unfortunate that it's been blunted, at, at least at this point.
0: Yeah, it's a it, <laughs> it's a good a good point, and thank you so much for your question, Rahan. That was that was a great question. All right, Patrick, I'm going to bring you up now. Great, thanks very much, Dave. Um, yeah, so just a, a quick one related back to the the transplants, the fecal transplants. Does it have to come from somebody, or can we not? Somehow like grow these these bacteria these cultures in some sort of environment um you know and and not actually do a quote unquote fecal transplant thanks yeah
2: um we have so many entrepreneurs I mean Dave has an amazing audience of so many uh entrepreneurs here this is this that is the real question is that can we keep these bacteria alive That's the hard part right alive out of their um, home? Um, and can we mimic the bacteria that we need to uh, replace uh, the bacteria that's already there? So with fecal transplant, what happens is you're kind of giving the soil along with um, the seed, seedlings. And so we, if we could figure out a way to do that without the other stuff, um, that would be ideal.
0: There is a company that has something like a hundred strains that come from poop, that put them in a pill that's enteric coated that seems to work, and of course they're selling it as a very expensive thousand dollar treatment kind of drug, um, versus you know the other way <laughs> of doing it. And I, um, I would say that so that there is some science that says you can do that, but the idea of getting some of the I'm going to call it the scaffolding that they grow on. It, yeah. it very much is like soil. So we're kind of like plants, uh, but we carry our soil around with us and plants have external soil and it's a mixture of you know, bacteria and nutrients mm-hmm. and fungus and all that. We have all that in our guts as well. So when you think about it, okay, if you're just getting the microbes, but you don't have the the substrate, like, like you said, like the soil around the little seedling, I'm not sure it's going to work as well. Yeah. Uh, but- At this point, if we can ship, you know, negative 200 degree vaccines all over the planet, I'm pretty sure we could ship poop around from healthy people. It's not that hard to do. And so
2: when fecal transplants were happening in the U.S., it was a really regulated process. So they would test them for every known virus and disease, typical, you know, HIV, hepatitis, um, every single Um, Communicable disease, and then it was tested for any kind of toxins or anything that would be dangerous for the receiving person. And then um, they would use a sterile technique of uh, using, like, a colon, basically the same materials you use for colonoscopy um, to use for that. And then once you were uh, the fecal transplant was completed, the entire everything that was used and touched would be um, uh, discarded, even the. Uh, materials that were used to uh, scope and all of it. Um, and so they had a very, very good technique down. I think it can be even better, right? If you could remove some of the aspect of, uh, for people to think like, oh, I don't want, you know, to transfer feces. You could really make it even more. But uh, like you said, Dave, you kind of, we, we risk losing the effectiveness when we we start to take things away like that.
0: Yeah. Amy, thank you for uh, writing a really good book that's accessible and focusing on that thing that's, it's actually hard to write about energy, but your title nailed it. Why am I so effing tired? Because this isn't a problem. It's a problem for parents. It's a problem for everyone right now. And I, I feel like it's getting worse as stress levels go up. So your approach has pared away a lot of the stuff out there. Oh, just go exercise more. Like, no, you know, oh, have chips. No. Uh, So I, I think you've, uh, you've done a good job in creating a framework that people can understand and is, it is very much correct from all the biological stuff that I understand that I've seen in my work. So I'm very happy to share it with Uh, Everyone who listens to Upgrade Radio, thanks Clubhouse uh, for tuning in. And thank you to the Upgrade Collective for being our live studio audience today and asking great questions.
2: Thank you so much, guys. Thank you to Clubhouse, the Upgrade Collective, to Dave, the team. Um, happy to be here and have a great conversation.
0: Your website, amymdwellness.com, your book, I'm So Effing Tired. All right. You guys can find it on Amazon and I will see you all on the next episode of bulletproof radio or the next upgrade collective class or the next clubhouse that I do when (laughs) I feel like it. (laughs) Bye everybody. You're listening to the human upgrade with Dave Asprey.
1: The human upgrade formerly bulletproof radio was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey.